When it comes to the Christian community that we call the local church, it's easy for believers to lose sight of the fact that there is a utilitarian function for every fellowship of faith. While it's true that the local church ought to be centered around the corporate worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's also true that the Lord has a practical purpose for every Christian congregation which includes the utilitarian equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, resulting in the edifying of the body of Christ. And seeing how the edifying of the body of Christ results in the unity of our faith, well, then we must not fail to see the connection between our unity and our utility. Simply put, the congregation that fails to accomplish the utility of the Christian community, well, they end up failing to maintain our unity in Christ. And at the same time, the congregation that fails to maintain our unity in Christ will end up losing sight of our utilitarian purpose, which includes the great commission of Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, well, we shouldn't be surprised to discover that Paul took the time to encourage the Christians there at the church in Philippi to maintain their unity so that they could become a community that was accomplishing their God-given utility. In similar fashion, it's my hope that we here today will also learn how to maintain the unity of our community and for the sake of Christian utility. Now, to further explain what I mean, we're going to spend our time today considering Paul's plan for maintaining Christian unity and for the purpose of utility And as we study the scriptures before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that Christian unity, it begins with charity. Secondly, we'll see how Christian unity is maintained through our humility. Thirdly, and finally, we'll consider how Christian unity ends up creating fraternity. And with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging his audience to maintain the unity of their Christian community and for the purpose of utility. And as we make our way to the second chapter of Philippians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul began this book by commending the Christians there at the church in Philippi for their fellowship or their koinonia in the faith. They were a church Uh, That was fellowshipping together and serving together. And it was in our study last week when we considered the way that Paul then encouraged them to maintain their unity by standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. With this as the goal, Paul now goes on to present them with the instructions that they needed to do this very thing. He presents them here in our text today with the instructions that are necessary for maintaining the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Philippians chapter 2. So if you would, let's begin our study here beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Here in our text today, we find Paul. He's providing the original recipients of this epistle with discipleship directives, which are designed to help them to maintain the unity of their Christian community. And in order to help them grasp this goal, Paul used descriptive terms which include like-minded and one accord. And I want to consider uh, what this means to be like-minded Christians who are working together in one accord. But now before I get too far ahead of myself, I want to slow down a bit so that we can understand the benefits of belonging to a unified body of believers. And with this as the focus, let's back up and let's take a closer look at the beginning of this chapter. If you would look with me there at verse 1, here again Paul declares, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Here in in this verse, we find Paul, he's describing these four incredible benefits that believers can enjoy as we enter into the unity of Christian community. And at at the top of the list here, we find the consolation that we all receive from Christ Jesus our Lord here within our church. That word consolation, it speaks of sympathy. It speaks of the solace that comes from the compassion and, and the kindness of Christ Jesus. And with this definition in mind, there should be no doubt that the community that is centered around our faith in Christ Jesus, well, that community is going to be a place where Christians are experiencing the consolation that's found in Christ. We're going to experience the sympathy that we oftentimes need. We're going to find the solace that comes from the compassionate kindness of Christ Jesus. And and we're going to be sharing this together in our Christian community. Not only that, but according to Paul, the unity of Christ-centered community should also fill us with the comfort of his love. That word comfort, which is found there in the middle of verse 1, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who reassure others with purposeful persuasion. Sometimes we just need that reassurance. And yet we don't want reassurance from someone who's just kind of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe you need this or not. No, no, we need purposeful persuasion that will reassure us, that will bring that comfort that we crave. And we must not fail to notice then that Paul here is referring to the comfort or the reassurance of purposeful persuasion that comes from love. It's the comfort of love. And we're not talking about just any old love. We're talking about the agape love of the Lord. Or more simply put, our church ought to be a place where we're comforting one another with the sacrificial love of the Lord. The third benefit that Paul mentions there in verse 1 is the fellowship of the Spirit. That word fellowship was, is translated from the Greek word koinonia. And just to be clear, koinonia fellowship refers to the communion that occurs within the context of a community. And we should also notice that Paul here is referring to the koinonia or fellowship of the Spirit. What this means is that the unity of Christian community is achieved through the fellowship that that occurs as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but remember the Holy Spirit has given us spiritual gifts that we are to use to build up others here within our fellowship of faith. And so the fellowship of the Spirit includes Christians uh, using the spiritual gifts that we've been given to build others up. 
We should also notice the affection and the mercy that Paul mentions there at the end of verse 1. That word affection, it speaks of the Christ-centered kindness and the caring benevolence that should fill the hearts of those who are walking in the love of the Lord. And not only that, but the word mercy, that speaks of the compassionate forgiveness that should become the emotional bond of our unity. You know, as we arrive here at church, not one of us is better than another. And the reason why? Well, it's because we're all sinners who have been saved by grace. That's, that's the Christian. Sinners who have been saved by grace. You're no worse a sinner than I am. I'm no worse a sinner than you are. We, we all find ourselves on level ground at the foot of the cross. And so we ought to be merciful to one another and affectionate. We ought to come to church with hearts that are filled with the affection of Christ Jesus and the mercy of our Messiah as we begin to connect with one another. And in this way, we can start you know, creating a community that is unified around the love of the Lord. And to sum it all up, it's just important for us to understand that Christian unity is based on the charity of God's agape love. Think about it. Did God owe you his love? Did you earn it? Do you deserve it? Or is it straight up charity? Oh, we're all charity cases. The Lord doesn't owe us his love, but with charity, he extends his love to us. And now Paul is saying, hey, you be charitable to one another now with the same sort of love. To prove my point, let's take another look at our text today. We'll back up and begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul declares, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, as we take a closer look at verse 2, we should take a moment to consider what it means to be like-minded. You know, when it comes to non-essential issues, we should all enjoy the freedom of maintaining personal opinions. You know, when it comes to non-essential issues, we should be charitable to one another. When it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith, there's no room for movement here. We should be quick to embrace the essential doctrines that we find in the Word of God. But when it comes to non-essentials and these debatable things that we could get into arguments about, listen, rather than allowing debatable things to divide us, we should submit ourselves to the mind of Christ who welcomes us into the church, uh, even if we are, you know, uh, taking uh, different positions on debatable things. You know, when it comes to non-essentials, well, we ought to be gracious to one another. We ought to be charitable to one another. And in this way, we can establish a, a, a unified community as we allow Christians uh, to have differing opinions about secondary, even tertiary issues uh, within the Christian faith. So we should be like-minded when it comes to the essentials, and we should be like-minded when it comes to the non-essentials, and, and we are like-minded on the non-essentials by simply allowing everybody else to also have their point of view and opinion here in the church. With this as the goal, we should notice what Paul wrote there in verse 2. There he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, that is to put on the mind of Christ. And how do we do this? Well, look there next, having the same love. Once again, Paul here is referring to the agape love of the Lord. I'll remind you, it was back in verse 1 there where Paul encouraged them to, to make sure that they were comforting one another in agape love. 
And now here in the middle of verse 2, Paul encourages them to become like-minded believers by making sure that we're walking in the same agape love, which is a sacrificial, benevolent, and charitable form of love. We ought to love one another with charity. And you might be thinking, well, this person doesn't, doesn't deserve my love. Right. That's why it's charity. That's why it's charitable love. Do you deserve the love of anybody else? Well, no. Let's, let's, let's make sure that they're loving us charitably, not because we deserve it. And in order to further grasp this goal, let's take a closer look there at verse 2. Here again, Paul declares, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Now, before you rush out and buy a new Honda Accord, that's not what we're talking about here. So it'll help you to know that the phrase one accord, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are united in spirit. Being of one accord is to be united in the spirit. And in this context, Paul calls the Christians there in Philippi to be united by their affections. We are to be united by our affections according to the charitable love of the Lord. Simply put, those who are walking in the love of the Lord will become believers who are are, are united by the affection of the Lord. And it's the charitable love of the Lord that helps us to work together with the mind of Christ. Let's consider again how Paul puts it there in verse 2. Here he declares, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now just to be clear, the phrase one mind, it's translated from a Greek phrase which is used in reference to those who seek or even strive after the things of their interests and affections. To be of one mind is to say, hey, we together are going to strive for or seek the things uh, of, of, of affection, the things that we are affectionate for. And, 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 but, you know, the fact is that we all love different things. You know, you, you might have an affection for one hobby. I might have an affection for another hobby. Or you might be rooting for one sports team, and I might be uh, rooting to not watch sports at all. But, you know, we, we might all have different affections. And so how do we make sure that this all comes together in one mind? as we strive for one affection. Well, we have to make sure that Christ is first. When we come to church, we have to make sure that Christ is the one who is leading us as a congregation. We have to make sure that our interests and our affections are based on the charitable love of the Lord so that we can then begin to pursue the things that Christ loves. I like the way that Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring or working to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. According to Paul, The Christians in every congregation ought to be endeavoring and working, striving to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace so that we can maintain peace here together with one another as we continue moving forward in faith. And with this as the goal, we must not fail to notice that the unity of the Spirit is based on the agape love of the Lord. 
You see, it's the agape love of the Lord that enables us to become charitable believers. It's the gospel, or the, the, it's, the, it, it's the love of the Lord, the agape love of the Lord that uh, fills us with the desire to go out and share the gospel with unbelievers. It's the agape love of the Lord that leads us to, to look past each other's idiosyncrasies and annoyances so that we can maintain peace here through love. As charitable believers, we're, we're able to show charity to, charity to others by bearing with one another and forgiving one another in the same way that we've received the charitable forgiveness of the Lord. So Christian, listen, before you hold a grudge, before you become bitter about somebody else, before you fail to maintain the unity of peace here, just remember how much you've been forgiven because of the charitable love of the Lord. And then turn around and offer that same charity to those who have offended you. Simply put, listen, Christian unity begins with the charity that is based on the agape love of the Lord, which helps us to begin to love one another in the way that the Lord would have us to. Not only that, but Christian unity is also maintained through individual humility. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Philippians chapter 2. It's here in chapter 2 where we find Paul connecting the dots between our unity here at church, and our humility, uh, individually speaking. If you would look with me there again at verse 3, here Paul declares, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Now here in this verse we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that Selfish ambition is one of the greatest reasons for why the unity of the church is oftentimes destroyed. Churches are oftentimes divided, even destroyed, because of the selfish ambitions of people within the church. And and just to be clear, the Greek word which is rendered selfish ambition is also used of those who engage in self-promotion. Self-promotion and selfish ambition, basically the same thing. And this self-promotion is typically according to the desire, uh, which is to put themselves forward. That's what selfish ambition is all about. I want me to be the center of your life. You know, everybody look at me, everybody pay attention to what I'm doing. This is selfish ambition. The same word was also used in a political sense of those who pursue a political office by unfair means. You know, maybe they, uh, you know, uh, on on the campaign trail, make promises that they know they're never going to try to keep. I know, it's hard to imagine a politician doing that. But those who do are engaged in selfish ambition. Someone who would rig the system and game the system in order to, you know, end up with more more votes than they actually got so that they might win the election at like 3 o'clock in the morning or something like that, like... Like that is selfish ambition, right? Not that that would ever happen, no. In a Christian context, we're referring to those who attempt to acquire a leadership position for selfish reasons. A person who comes to church and seeks out a leadership position, not because they love the church, not because they love people, not because they love the Lord, but because they love themselves. This is selfish ambition. This reminds me of the issue that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There he declares this, for first of all, when you come together as a church, 
I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. From this, we can see that Paul was dealing with division that was happening there at the church in Corinth. And after hearing about these divisions, he says, I believe it. And the Lord is allowing it so that those who have been approved by the Lord may be recognized. Listen, the divisions that take place within a church are typically between those that the Lord has chosen and ordained and approved and the conflict with those who are driven by selfish ambition that leads them to promote their own agenda within the church. And knowing that those who are motivated by these selfish ambitions tend to create divisions within their church, the Apostle Paul encouraged every Christian to refrain from these sorts of fleshly motivations that are just self-serving ambitions. And not only that, but he also encouraged us to avoid the carnal pride that creates conceit within our hearts. Let's consider how he puts it here in Philippians chapter 2. If you would look with me again at verse 3, here Paul declares, let nothing be done. How many things is nothing? That's no things, right? So let no things be done through selfish ambition or or conceit. That word conceit is used of those who are puffed up with empty pride. They think they're better than they actually are. They, they, they don't really understand how fallen they really are. And rather than realizing that every believer within the Christian community is equally important, and, and let me just assure you of that right now, every believer is equally important within the church. And by that, I mean, you know, we're not really that important at all, right? There are some people, though, who are so conceited that they can't imagine that this church could function without them. This is really something that plays out in the minds of prideful people that, well, this ministry, it's going to fall apart if I'm not here. Listen, I can assure you, Jesus doesn't need me here. No, he, 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 I would even argue that, you know, he scraped the bottom of the barrel and, and said, let's, let's see what we can do with this guy, you know. But listen, if the Lord decides to take me out and replace me with another pastor, he doesn't need me. He, he can accomplish his will with, with anyone who will simply submit to his lordship. We shouldn't have it in our minds that like we are some necessary component of the ministry here that you know, it's all going to fall apart unless we're here. And so we try to shoehorn ourselves into every single decision that's being made because we're so filled with pride that we think that we are essential for the functioning of this church. That's just pride. That's just conceit. And it's for this reason that conceited Christians are also quick to create conflict with those who fail to fall in line with their selfish ambitions because they can't imagine it being any other way than the way that they thought of. Let's be careful with this sort of foolishness because we ought to do nothing, no thanks, through selfish ambition or conceit. And if this sounds like something that you struggle with, then I encourage you to consider the counsel that Paul presents in Galatians chapter 5. It's verses 24 through 26. Here he declares, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. 
From this, we can see that those who are conceited, they love to provoke those that they envy. They see a person with a position, they, they, they like to have that position, and so it's just constant provocation because they think that they would be better for that position. It's the empty pride of selfish ambition that oftentimes results in this sort of unrighteous anger that leads carnal Christians to create conflicts with others that they oppose. And knowing how these carnal conflicts can destroy the unity of Christian community, Paul encouraged us to simply walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we're called to crucify the empty pride of conceit. I want to consider how Paul explains it here in Philippians chapter 2. If you would, let's take another look at verse 3. Here he declares this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Rather than creating conflict with others, you know, from a mind that is filled with selfish ambitions and a heart that is filled uh, with unrighteous conceit, Paul encouraged us to instead maintain a lowliness of mind. That's what he's telling the Christians there in Philippi. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, just to be clear, the phrase lowliness of mind, it's actually translated from one Greek word which was used to describe those who have a humble opinion of themselves. And we're not talking about false humility, you know, the sort of humility where people engage in self-deprecation that they don't really believe in. Yeah, I'm the worst pastor in the world, I know. You know, and, and, and the pastor doesn't really believe it, or, 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 you know, at the same time, you know, Moses did call himself the most humble man in the world, but, but he was. So that's humility, right? When he announced himself as the most humble man in the world, and he was, in fact, the most humble man in the world, that's humility, just you know, being honest about who you are. But truly, you know, uh, humility is based in a modest opinion of yourself, not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Like, like I would never say that you know, like I'm the best pastor in the world. That wouldn't be a modest opinion of myself. I'm, I'm guessing that I'm like number two, you know, or so... <laughs> But having a modest opinion of yourself, that, that helps to maintain the unity of the church. The same Greek word that's translated humility here, it's also used by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's verse 5 where he declares, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love that. What would the church be like if Christians spent more time clothing themselves in humility rather than worrying about what outfit they were going to wear to church? Imagine. Christian, listen, the unity of Christian community must be maintained by believers who have a modest opinion of themselves and clothe themselves with humility. Those who are getting up early and getting their outfit together, that'll be sure to draw the attention of every person. There's no humility in that. We ought to instead clothe ourselves with humility so that we might draw the attention of others to Jesus Christ. 
As we consider the way that Peter encouraged us to be clothed with humility, it's important to understand that he was effectively encouraging every Christian to learn how to show up to church and be a servant rather than the center of attention. We have to come and serve each other in humility so that we can maintain the unity uh, that then helps us to achieve our utility. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Philippians chapter 2. If you would look with me again at verse 3, here he declares, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. What are we supposed to do? We are to let each esteem others better than himself. Now that word esteem, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it's used of those who honor and respect others exceedingly. It's not just a general baseline respect that we ought to have for humans, you know, that, 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 you know, that we might not respect, but okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll just put them on the same playing field as everybody else that we're supposed to show. No, no, he's saying respect one another exceedingly more than you might. As we consider the point that Paul was making, we can see here that the Christian who wants to maintain the unity of their Christian community should learn how to serve one another, and that's how we respect them exceedingly. Not not coming to them on the basis of, hey, we're equals, which we are, but rather showing up and saying, let me be the servant. When it's time for the foot washing, are you the person that's kicking off your shoes ready to have your feet washed? Or are you the one reaching for the towel and the water basin ready to wash the feet? Let's find out real quick. Everybody kick off their shoes real quick. And <laughs> Hope you wore your shoals. We've been called to show up to church ready to serve rather than looking to be served. Because this is how we esteem others better than ourselves. And in this way, humility helps us to maintain the unity of community so that we can then go on to accomplish the utility for which God has created the church. And with this as the goal, let's consider the way that Paul explains it in the letter that he sent to Rome. And so if you would, hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, and specifically Romans chapter 12. As you make your way to the 12th chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Apostle Paul went out and planted churches, and the Apostles went out and planted churches so that Christian congregations could learn to work together in order to accomplish the Great Commission. And knowing that our mission is disrupted by those who want to create divisive disunity within the congregation, Paul encourages Christians to walk in humility so that we can maintain the unity of Christian community, thereby accomplishing our utility. And with this as the focus, let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 12. I want to direct your attention beginning at verse 10. Here Paul declares, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's detailing this list of discipleship directives which help us to understand the importance of having a humble heart so that we can maintain the unity of our community. And as we, you know, re-look at this list, as we take another look here at this list here, listen, it takes true humility to develop an honest desire that leads us to give preference to others. Because naturally, who do we want to have preference Who should have preferential treatment? Well, me, of course. And I'm guessing that's your answer as well. But Paul says, hey, give preference to others. Well, that would take some humility on my part. It takes true humility to be patient in tribulation because we want God to deliver us today. Do we deserve that though? And and should we expect God to give us something other than what he's determined for us? Well, that takes true humility to, to, to submit to his plan. And it takes true humility to provide for the needs of the saints with heartfelt hospitality when we want to be the ones being served. And it takes true humility to bless those who persecute us rather than seeking the revenge that our flesh desires. It takes true humility to rejoice with those who re- rejoice rather than giving into the envious jealousy that, that makes us wonder, why didn't we get blessed in that way? It takes true humility to weep with those who weep when we'd rather go out and spend time with those who are celebrating. It takes true humility to be the same mind towards others as we set our minds on being the the, the bondservant of our Savior. It takes true humility to make sure that we don't become so conceited that we are those unteachable believers who, you know, just can't hear it from anybody else. And to sum it all up with simplicity, humility is the right heart for those who want to maintain the unity of our Christian community because it takes humility for us to work together, setting aside our own preferences so so that we can accomplish our calling, which is the great commission. And this brings us to our third and final point because, listen, Christian unity not only begins with the charity that's based on the agape love of the Lord, And Christian unity is not only maintained through humility, which leads us to become the servants of others here within our fellowship of faith. But listen, Christian unity also creates a fraternity of faith here within our church. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, with that, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging his audience to embrace the fraternity of faith. And if you would look with me there at verse 4. Here Paul declares, let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now here in this verse we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there at the church in Philippi to become those believers who are actively looking for every opportunity to create the fraternity that ought to occur in every Christian community. And just to be clear, listen, I'm not talking about the sort of fraternities that can be found on most college campuses. I'm most certainly not referring to the fraternities that are found in raunchy college movies like Revenge of the Nerds or Animal House. No, I'm not referring to that at all. No one said I'm referring to the fraternity that ought to occur amongst believers who begin to realize that our Heavenly Father has gathered us together for a common purpose because that's what fraternity speaks of. 
a group that is gathered together for a common purpose. And you better believe that God the Father gathers together Christians into the local churches that he's established for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission. The local church then should be a fraternity of believers who are working together to accomplish the will of the Lord. With this as the goal, Paul encouraged us to realize that we ought not look out for our own personal interests only, but we've also been called to look out for the interests of others. And in this context, you know, Paul was clearly referring to the corporate interests of the Christian community. In other words, we should not only spend our time attempting to achieve our own personal interests, because, you know, Paul's not saying that that's necessarily wrong. It's not wrong to have personal interests and personal goals. But at the same time, we should also make time to invest in the interests of our Christian brothers and sisters who are here in our fellowship of faith. I like the way that Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, where he declares, Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. Now listen, again, this is not to suggest that we must give up on all of our own personal plans. At the same time, though, it's also important for us to realize that our Heavenly Father is leading us and calling us to become those believers who are actively participating in Christian fraternity within our fellowship of faith. And with this as the goal, we must not fail to realize that he's calling us to use the talents and the gifts that that we've uh, been given so that we can build up the body of believers who are here within this fraternity of faith. And I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in Philippians chapter 2. Look with me again at verse 4. Here Paul declares, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, believers should actively look for every opportunity to bless others here within our fraternity of faith. One of the best ways to do this is by simply taking the interests and even the talents that we've already acquired and looking for ways to use our our natural interests and talents for the benefit of the body. You know, know, some of us, uh, you know, we are talented in the area of construction. Others are talented with culinary arts or or some of us uh, understand computer technology. Some of us are just really good at social media. You know, but, but listen, all of these things can be used here within the context of the church. Whatever, whatever your natural abilities are, whatever your, your, your natural interests are, those things can be incorporated into our fraternity of faith, and they ought to be. Not only that, but listen, every believer has also received spiritual gifts which help us to accomplish our calling in Christ. Here's how Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He puts it like this. He tells us that there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. 
For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that the Holy Spirit has distributed charismatic gifts to every born-again believer individually, but not so that you can go home and use those spiritual gifts all by yourself. He didn't give us spiritual gifts so that we can hold on and keep these spiritual gifts to ourselves. No, instead, he's given us spiritual gifts, charismatic gifts, for the benefit of the entire body. And so we ought to be using our spiritual gifts to build up the body here within our fellowship of faith. We've been called to use our gifts for the benefit of the rest of the body. And in this way, the fraternity of unity results then in a utility of a fully functioning body that is accomplishing the work of the Great Commission. And with this as the calling, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking this. Am I using my spiritual gifts to build up the rest of the body here at Calvary South Austin? Or am I too busy pursuing my own personal interests to the detriment of my Christian community? Am I embracing the unity of fraternity through steadfast service? Or am I failing to fulfill my purpose here within this fraternity of faith? Sadly, there are many Christians who are failing to fulfill their function within the church, and the reason why is because they're just way too busy with every other commitment that they've made, which is keeping them from the unity of fraternity. Some people have uh, dedicated themselves to so many things that God never called them to, and those things are keeping those believers from actually plugging in and being an active member of their own uh, of their own church. And if this sounds like your situation, I encourage you to consider the encouragement that Paul presents in Galatians chapter 6. It's beginning there at verse 1. Here Paul declares, "Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, listen, every believer has been called to help bear the burdens of the rest of the believers here in our Christian congregation. And and listen, this burden uh, that Paul is referring to, I mean, it could run the gamut of of all the different types of burdens that we might need help bearing up. But listen, Paul's specifically referring to the burdens which are experienced by those who are overtaken in their trespasses. That's right. It's possible for Christians to still struggle with the sins that so easily ensnare us. And there are times when backslidden believers just see no way out of this bondage. Sadly, there are churches that will immediately kick a Christian out of the church because they've you know, slid back into sin. But rather than rushing to kick them to the curb, listen, we've been called to first help them. We've been called to restore them. We've been called to help bear their burden through Christian accountability, and so we should. 
With this as the goal, I should take a moment to point out that the only way that we can bear one another's burdens is actually by becoming those believers who are actively involved in the lives of others here in our fraternity of faith. In order to, uh, to, to, to know that there's another believer in our church that is struggling in sin, the only way that we're going to know that you know, is if we're actually involved in their lives. To further make my case, I want to consider the way that Paul explains this to the Christians at the church in Corinth. And so if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and as we make our way to the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to spend a, a few seconds here reminding you about the fact that the church is like a body. We, saw, we see Paul making this comparison several times throughout his epistles. The church is like a body which has multiple members. And in light of this comparison, we should take a moment to consider the difficulties that arise for the person who ends up being affected by paralysis. In order to put this into perspective, let's consider the times when we may have broken an arm or a leg. Without debate, you know, everything became exponentially more difficult as we set out to accomplish daily tasks. You know, when you're walking around with a cast on, you know, or, or you have a cast on your hand and your arm and you just can't use it the way you normally do. Imagine having like two broken arms or, or two broken legs. I mean, that's just even worse. But now imagine how difficult things would be if we ended up suffering some sort of partial paralysis. How difficult would it be to accomplish simple everyday tasks if we lost the use of both of our arms and hands. Imagine trying to brush your teeth. You know, imagine trying to just, you know, take a, a soda and, and take a drink, you know. How difficult would it be if, if both hands and arms are paralyzed? Or, or how difficult would it be to accomplish, you know, simple things like walking around if both of your feet and legs were paralyzed? Clearly, the utilitarian functionality of our entire body would be greatly reduced by this uh, problem of uh, of partial paralysis. Well, with this in mind, let's consider a a spiritual parallel as we uh, remember that the body of Christ is comparable to our body. Think about the utilitarian functionality of the church and how it would be greatly reduced if all the members failed to fulfill their function. This is, you know, part of the point that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 18. Here Paul declares, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Christian, listen, 
we are all individually members of the mystical body that we call the local church. And while it's true that we've all been called to step up and serve according to our place in the body, it's also true that the church is suffering from the spiritual paralysis that occurs whenever individual members fail to function in the way they were designed to function. When, when Christians choose to you know, uh, just show up and leave and not serve and not be active members, they're, they're, a, they're, they're a paralyzed aspect of this body. And it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian that we ought to step up and serve so that we can accomplish the utility of fraternity with simplicity. Because listen, for every Christian that's not serving, there's another Christian that's working twice as hard. For every Christian that chooses not to serve, there's another Christian that's doing twice the work. And and so, you know, for the sake of loving one another and for the sake uh, of being of the same mind and and giving preference to others, we all ought to be doing our part so that we can edify the entire body with the way the Lord has called us to serve him. As we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the unity of Christian community is not only needed for the health of each believer individually, But the unity of Christian community is also necessary for achieving the utilitarian functionality of our fellowship. In other words, the church that wants to accomplish the utilitarian purpose of the Great Commission must make sure that we are working together as a unified fellowship of faith so that we can accomplish our calling in Christ. And with this as the goal, I encourage you to remember that this begins by maintaining our Christian unity. And Christian unity begins with charity. And it's the charity that's based on the agape love of the Lord. We ought to be charitable to one another. And Christian unity is also maintained through humility, the the humility that leads us to serve others here within our fellowship of faith because we're giving preference to them over ourselves. And finally, Christian unity creates a fraternity of faith which enables us to fulfill our utilitarian function according to the will of the Lord. Christian, listen, the Lord has called our church to accomplish the Great Commission. It's that plain and simple. We as a church have been called to accomplish the Great Commission. This includes evangelistic endeavors. And at the same time, this also involves our corporate worship services. And within our corporate worship services, you know, there's the praise team and the the sound team doing that work so that we can corporately sing the praises of our Savior together. There's the children's ministry classes and the helpers and the teachers who are there dedicating their time and energy to uh, teaching our kids at a level they can understand. There's the hospitality ministry that makes sure that there's plenty of coffee so that you don't fall asleep in the middle of the Bible study. Praise the Lord for the hospitality ministry. There's the greeting crew that greets us and and helps us to to feel loved the minute we arrive. There's the security team that keeps us safe while we're here. There's the media team that streams the service so that those who can't be with us here can watch online. There's the cleaning crew that cleans up your mess after you leave. There are thousands of opportunities to serve our Savior here at Calvary South Austin. With that being the case, I want to encourage every Christian in closing, we ought to step up and serve. 
We have to step up and serve using our natural talents, using our charismatic gifts, using everything that the Lord has called us to use so that we can achieve the utility of Christian unity. Let's pray.